Many supermarkets have been frantic across Auckland with shelves ripped bare as people rush to stockpile essential supplies. The world's just going nuts. Oh, Midlam. It's too much people over there. It's like panic buying today. However this coronavirus outbreak develops from this point, we can already say with certainty that the economic consequences are going to be enormous. Global markets have shed more than $6 trillion in value. Hi, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. And I'm Jesse Chang. Today on The Detail, the rising fears over coronavirus. The context is ripe in all kinds of ways for a panic, right? People are less resilient, and then all of a sudden there's news of this thing that's really, really terrifying, so people panic. Also, why that same panic has sent the stock market into a downward spiral. This is a bigger spook than most, hence people are more panicked, people are more uncertain, the falls have been more pronounced. I do want to uh, inform you that I've just received confirmation uh, that the suspected case of coronavirus that we reported earlier today has been confirmed as a case of coronavirus. The individual is uh, in their 60s, uh, currently in Auckland Hospital, in a stable and improving condition. And it's that announcement that sent hordes of panicked shoppers to the supermarket. And the toilet paper shelves, Jessie, are still empty in Mount Eden. Yeah, and we heard from our colleague that in Greylin, although there's toilet paper there, there aren't any rice crackers. No, the upmarket kind of rice crackers, yes, apparently. Yes, exactly. And uh, my mother showed me pictures that her friends had sent her of people cleaning out the rice on the shelves. Um, that's in East Auckland? That's in East Auckland. And on the North Shore, Alexia Russell, our producer, told us about the havoc that she saw there with all the shoppers buying out hand sanitizers. But the question is, why? What's this term moral panic that's surfacing now? Well, we got in touch with Victoria University criminology lecturer Sarah Mono de Froville, and she breaks it down for me. I've seen it before. You know, so I'm a little bit suspicious. I thought, probably thought the same thing as I would think on um, the day before Christmas or the day before Good Friday when people are in there sort of, you know, stripping the shelves because the supermarket's going to be closed for one day. It's ridiculous. Is it moral panic? It has some features of moral panic, but the thing about a moral panic is that you can only really um, claim that one has happened in retrospect because the criteria for a moral panic is that the reaction is disproportionate to an objective reality. And because we have no real understanding of what that objective reality is in a case like this until afterwards, measured by the number of cases or the number of deaths um, per cases, etc., then we really can't say that the reaction is out of proportion. Why is it called moral panic? I mean, where's the morality in this? Um, it's called a moral panic usually because the reactors are, um, back in the day when moral panic as a concept was developed, tend to be the moral guardian scale of things, the police, the church leaders. So in, in a case like this, it is a, a difficult one. But the health authorities also have a moral responsibility because they would be the ones who would be held to account if they didn't communicate the risk. So that's where the morality kind of comes in as well. What does it stem from? What's the history? Well, it was developed as a, a, a usable concept in the 1960s around the mods and the rockers. And they were two teenage groups in the UK that would get into rumbles during the weekend. So there was one particular rumble 
and it was at Easter in 1964, and it was quite profound, and the media started to report this, and the police got on board. It was a collective set of reactions that fed off each other to a point where uh, the community and the media and the police were all saying, look out for the next rumble. So people started to expect there to be a, a, a rumble from these Monson Rockers. And what would happen as a result of that is that the Monson Rockers would actually get together and perform. And there was actually no real threat. It was basically just two groups of teenagers having a bit of a scuffle. So the reaction brought on the rumbles themselves. But moral panics have been attributed to all sorts of things and the media itself actually is often panicked about things like video nasties and cyberbullying and sexting and online gambling. And there's been health panics like SARS and bird flu and Ebola and, and drug panics, Ritalin, ecstasy, even Alcopops, RTDs. Canadian cognitive scientist Samuel Paul Vazier explains why we're getting hysterical about a virus that well, so far, is not nearly as deadly as flu. Samuel, we've picked up this article in uh, Psychology Today, and I love the headline of it, how COVID-19 is infecting our minds, not our lungs. Yeah, I'm quite convinced that this is the case. Why do you say that? Uh, For all kinds of reasons. Uh, First, because we know that humans are really bad at estimating actual probabilities, Uh, They're prone to panic and worry for all kinds of reasons that we can discuss. Uh, But what's going on right now is clearly a moral panic uh, that is not at all grounded in any kind of real risk. But the, you know, the evolution of human worry, uh, of human neuroticism has a lot to do with pathogens and viruses. So viruses is one of the things that humans worry about the most. Because what's happening in in Montreal, is there panic buying going on over there? I mean, here, our supermarket shelves with toilet paper are empty. People have gone in there and bought up large. That's one of the things that they've stocked up on. And I know a colleague's husband has stocked up on rolled oats and they've they've got packets of rolled oats lying under the bed. Right. So there is a bit of epidemic hoarding uh, going on here. People are buying face masks and uh, hand sanitizers. It's not quite at the level that we're seeing in the United States, where I understand things are quite crazy, but it's happening here. In fact, right after this, I'm going over to do a live uh, TV interview to talk about hoarding in the context of the moral panic. So that fits in with the moral panic. For sure, it really does. Why? I mean, because you've got the figures here at the moment for coronavirus. So far, there are around 80,000 cases. It might have changed a little bit over the last few days. That is 0.0001% of the world population. In comparison, uh, seasonal outbreaks of influenza make 3 to 5 million people sick. 0.06 of the population and Mm -hmm. the seasonal flu can result in up to 650,000 deaths each year. So the figures for that are much higher and yet there's no moral panic over the seasonal flu. Yeah, so when you look at the casualty rates uh, for the coronavirus, 
We're at about 3,000 people worldwide right now, which in a population of 7.7 billion is basically nothing. So to put things in perspective again, in the United States alone, the seasonal flu this year has killed up to 46,000 people. And the flu in the U.S. kills about 50,000 people a year. Now, heart disease kills 600,000 people a year. And these are not things that people worry about anymore because they're part of the everyday fabric of how people expect the world to be. So one of the factors with uh, the coronavirus is, of course, novelty. I think another thing that's going on, if we're to compare with, because you might remember the SARS epidemic, H1N1, even AIDS, you know, 20 years ago, they caused moderate moral panics, but not on this level. Mm. One of the first things that has changed, I think, is the internet, the 24-hour news cycle, the fact that people are connected all the time. And as you know from working in the news, you know, if it, if it bleeds, it leads. So things about dangers and panic and outrage of all kinds tend to go viral. And I think we also have internet companies that know how to exploit our mental vulnerabilities to keep us clicking and connecting at all times so they can make money from uh, from advertisement. So the, the internet is for sure one of the novel factors here. And explain to me, you talk about how morality has co-evolved along with other things with pathogens. What does that mean? Right. So it's, it's a bit of a long story, but it's really fascinating. Um because actually, the kinds of animal-borne pathogens uh, like uh, like the coronavirus and the ones that have killed the most humans throughout history, like measles, smallpox, uh, the, or the plague, have evolved very, very recently. So about uh, 7,000 years ago or so, in the late Neolithic, when humans started domesticating uh, animals and plants. What is a little bit evolutionarily older is what we call the negativity bias. So first... Humans are obsessed with things that convey information about potential threats because there's a clear survival advantage for that. We're better off estimating that something poses a danger and surviving than the other way around. So the, the thing about pathogens that's interesting is that when you look at, for example, the kinds of metaphors that people use uh, when they discuss moral outrage or when they discuss fear of the other, fear of strangers. People often talk about even migrants as, as vermin. They talk about sick individuals infecting the minds of, of their youth. They talk about being grossed out. Uh, so a lot of our everyday basic folk morality recruits these sort of threat detection and also pathogen detection mental mechanisms down to the very kind of metaphors that we use. Another thing that we know is that disgust sensitivity, so being grossed out, is a, is a psychological trait, kind of like openness to experience or neuroticism. Some people are higher in it, some people are lower in it. Now, people who are highly germophobic and who get grossed out easily tend to be more morally rigid, more ideologically rigid, and they tend to be less open-minded in general. And there's also big sort of cross-cultural differences in societies that are quote-unquote tighter, so they have uh, stricter moral norms and less tolerance for deviance, and others like New Zealand, for example, which is known to be a very a very loose society in which there's there's a lot of tolerance for individuality, but not enough to stop people from going out panic buying toilet paper and rolled oats. <laughs> that that is correct, and we and we can talk about what what has changed historically. But one of the things that cognitive scientists sort of found out in examining the historical and cross-cultural record and why some societies were, you know, quote-unquote tighter and others looser is that a lot of the tight societies had a high prevalence of pathogens historically. 
And the cutoff date is about 1500, the time of European colonization, because a lot of social norms were already pretty deeply set in by that point, and things would not have changed very much. But that depends. Um, Aotearoa, New Zealand, is a post-colonial society. It's very likely that the pre-colonial Maori would have been a little bit tighter, and the the pre-colonial British peasants would also have been tighter. But now New Zealand is a, is a very safe country with very low rates of pathogens. And for some strange reason, it evolved a set of really sort of loose norms. You know, your country was the first to give women the right to vote in the 19th century. So you're saying that people who live in a world where they have kind of very strict norms, they're very ultra conservative, would you say? Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. They tend to be more fearful of things like viruses. They tend to be more distrustful of anything novel and less open to innovation, but they tend to have developed some protocols to deal with epidemics, so things like quarantine, but things like, I know this doesn't sound very nice, but even xenophobia and fear of strangers is adaptive in a context where strangers are very likely to bring diseases to which you have no immunity. So even starting in in the late Neolithic in ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt, it was very common when strangers arrived at a settlement for them to be quarantined until they could be shown to be disease-free. So a lot of human conflict and human racism and xenophobia also started peaking and evolving more after the agricultural revolution when these new pathogens uh, evolved through basically contact between a lot of humans and a lot of animals and their droppings in conditions of poor sanitation. Now, in, in parts of the world with lower population density, like say among hunter-gatherers, for example, or non-agricultural people, the epidemic risks were not there. So typically you found more, more, more open-minded people. Mm, that's fascinating. And what do you think will happen, Samuel? I mean, do you think things are going to start settling down Are things going to get better? I would say most likely yes, uh, because not as many people as we expect are going to die from this. Uh, In the northern hemisphere, at least, it's soon going to be spring and warmer, uh, so the virus is not going to spread as much. And by next year, most people will have developed immunities, and then coronavirus will just be another strain of flu uh, with a lower mortality rate. Uh, People might also just get tired of the the headlines because... Right now, this is novel, but people get tired of hearing the same thing all the time. It doesn't become as arousing or, or scary anymore. Mm. So, it, But it could also be that in some places, and I really hope it's not the case, I'm even hesitant to say this on air because I don't want to give people bad ideas, but it may be that in a few places there might be a bit of looting, uh, there might be, you know, hopefully not quite riots, uh, but, and we might see, as we have seen already, sadly, like an increase in xenophobia, right? For example, xenophobia against Asian people, you know, that's completely unfounded. So these are, these are the, the, the risks of things that could get worse for a while before they get better. And long before panic shoppers hit the supermarkets, fears about the coronavirus were already hitting the economy. RNZ's business editor Giles Bickford explains what's been happening with the stock market. Shares have, in times of uncertainty, in times of fear, in times of other people don't know what's happening with diseases or wars or trade issues, then shares being one of the riskier assets around and also one of the assets that you can realise the value and you can cash them in and sell them. People have been doing that and they've been heading to the sidelines. They look for safe places to put their money. 
If you look at our share market, which is actually was last year was one of the best performing in the world, it gained 30% in value. That meant all our KiwiSaver accounts did quite well out of it, some better than others. At the beginning of last week, the market was at a record high above 12,000. As I speak to you now, it is down about 10% from there, it around sitting around just under 11,000. So you know, that's how far the panic has, has gone. People have been looking at stocks such as A2 Milk, which does an enormous amount of business with China. Um, that's been sold off. Air New Zealand, obviously, as an airline that's open to losing passengers, having cancelled flights to China, is uh, susceptible to any downturn in tourism. That's down markedly, as a company such as Tourism Holdings. But the other thing is that at times like this, people will also cash in. So, for instance, amongst the best-performing stocks last year were utility stocks, the power companies, the boring things that just earn money, they don't do much, but there's cash flow, they're cash cows. Right? They've been sold off because people figured, well, look, I don't think the market's going to recover anytime soon. I'm up 10% on the value of my holding from last year. I'll take the money, I'll put it somewhere safe, and I'll wait to come back in, and perhaps I'll buy cheaply later in the year. Yeah. I think, and I think that's what we're going to see. Why is the stock market so vulnerable? The fear factor can be easily amplified. If you don't know what's going on and you don't know whether the value of your asset is going to go up or down or you fear that it may go down, because you can sell out of shares quite quickly, you can take your price, you can take a profit, you can cut your losses, it's the easy hit, it's the easy release valve for nervous investors. Uh, And at such times, then you just sell. You mentioned a 10% drop in the New Zealand share market. So how big of a deal is that compared to, you know, other events in the past? Oh, that's uh, one of the bigger ones that we've had, although I was looking back through some of the history of the past two years, and there have been at least 10 periods in the past two years where we've seen the market fall 2-3% in the space of a week. Uh, sometimes we've had six or seven losing sessions in a row. And remarkably, they've been uh, connected to comments made by President Trump, by developments in the US-China trade relationship, uh, by the imposition of tariffs. So it doesn't take too much to spook markets. All we can say is that this is a bigger spook than most, hence people are more panicked, people are more uncertain, the falls have been more pronounced, steeper, and I think they'll be longer. It will take us a while to get back uh, lost ground. How long do you think? Well, I would have to say that we will be looking for months uh, in recovery, if history is anything to go by. So when the economy is bubbling along, your stocks and shares are too... But people often forget those numbers can go both ways. If business is down, your shares lose their value, also affecting the value of the stock market as a whole. And ultimately, that knock-on effect is what's happening because of the coronavirus. Beckford's saying it's a once-in-a-decade type of event. There is no place in the world that is likely to be unaffected by it. And that is one of the key reasons why the reactions have been so deep and why they're likely to be quite prolonged.
but people are crunching their numbers all the time. And uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see where the consensus lies. And we've already seen from Stats NZ, which you know, is the cruncher of all the official numbers for this country, and they've just done some back-of-the-envelope calculations about the first three or four weeks hit from the virus on our exports to China. And the suggestion is that we've probably missed out on about $300 million worth of export sales wow. to China. Okay. That's in four weeks. Now, th- as I say, they're back of the envelope uh, calculations. We'll get a much better steer in a few weeks' time. But it, it, it will cost this economy billions of dollars one way or the other. We've certainly been hearing from Grant Robertson, the finance minister, in the past week. He's been quietly preparing people for quite a significant hit to the economy, and therefore that may alter some government economic priorities and some government spending. It is a fast-moving situation. So at the moment, uh, the expectations of the IMF and others is that there will be a rebound in the second half of the year. But the more that we see this spread to other countries beyond China, the more it's likely we move to the second of our scenarios, which is that we'll see an impact right through 2020. But, you know, for most people, this will not affect their, their finances to any considerable extent. Their KiwiSavers, for instance, you can't get at your KiwiSaver account unless you're actually trying to buy a house uh, or you're undergoing hardship, and those are only small parts of the KiwiSaver. So for most people, the movements up and down in their KiwiSaver accounts are on paper only. Mm. And so from that point of view... You're neither better off nor worse off until you cash it in, and that's a long time away. There is a converse side, of course. At times like this, the banks become quite cautious who they lend to. And so some businesses may find that capital, either if they want to borrow, will either be more expensive to borrow or they won't be able to get all that they want. And from that point of view, that's where you start to see some of the economic effects that flow through into small businesses, as well as the hit that they may have on their trade uh, and their sales. But for most folk, this will not affect their day-to-day existence other than somebody's gone and bought all the hand wash and all the toilet paper before you in the supermarket. That's the detail today. I'm Jessie Chang with Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ on Air. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Samuel Paul Vazier, Sarah Minot de Fraudville, and Giles Beckford. Kakite Arnold.